You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Indeed, you are listening to a BJSM podcast. And this one is about the sports cardiology supplement. It was published in November and it was a culmination of a year's work from Matthew Wilson, who runs the sports cardiology research program at uh, Aspatar Sports Medicine Centre in Qatar. This is where there's extensive screening of athletes done as part of the clinical care. And Matthew has a long research experience as well as being a PhD in the area of exercise and cardiology. Matthew, thanks for joining this podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. And we're recording this in Doha, Qatar. And Matthew, it's over to you now. Take us through the first couple of papers in the supplement and tell us what they add for the reader. Well, Aspatar is a, is a sports medicine hospital. We are based in Doha, in the Middle East. And we uh, opened our doors about four years ago, and we had a blank page. And we wanted to do the best clinical practice to, for looking after our athletes, become a leader in sports medicine. And we wanted to do pre-participation screening, uh, and we didn't know how to go about it. You know, what are the best practices you know, that we can do to make sure that our athletes receive the best possible care? And so in doing so, we set up a sports cardiology project. We've now screened over 5,000 athletes. And in doing so, in screening those 5,000 athletes, we've come across a huge number of clinical diagnostic challenges, um, which pre present to us a conundrum, which is, does this individual have a cardiac pathology or does this individual have no cardiac pathology and can have full medical clearance to participate in sport? And consequently, these conundrums have become more frequent. And the special issue was designed for the sports medicine physician to allow them to say, actually, hey, look, I've come across this um, problem before. Here's a group of ex experts who actually say, right, we're now going to provide some guidelines and some examples about what to do in these difficult situations. You know, what is the best practice for my athlete? Am I covered? Is this athlete at risk of sudden cardiac death? Or is this just a, you know, an anomaly that is routinely found in athletes that you know, I am covered? It's a critical problem. So why don't you take us through the first couple editorials in the special issue? What are the things the reader's going to find? We start the edition with a few editorials. But actually, they reflect their reflections of some articles uh, within the main paper itself. Uh, and actually, the main starting point is a debate between myself and Greg White and professors Ben Levine and Paul Thompson in America. Uh, and this debate summarizes five clinical questions that we see routinely in this hospital. If you do undertake pre-participation screen, how is, you know, what is the best methodology to do it? If you have somebody who is gene positive but phenotypically negative, do you allow this person to play? If you have an athlete with a horrible ECG but demonstrates normal cardiac imaging, MRIs normal, etc., 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 do I allow this person to play? And so this is a debate between what the, the, the eminent cardiologists in America would do between two physiologists, myself and Greg White, about what we do, about how we advise our physicians in this hospital. And then you go on to discussing the issue of mandatory ECGs and what should be in mandatory ECGs? Um, well, I think that's a good question. Uh, this hospital does not mandate screening. Um, it is a voluntary process. 
the Qatar Football Association buy into this recommendation. It is a recommendation. Uh, and I think what uh, an editorial that Matt Bjornsson and John Dresner have done, which is excellent, is that what was lost in our debate was that we, it came across that we were saying that ECG screening should be mandated. Now, we weren't saying that. What we were saying is that if you were going to uh, uh, undertake pre-participation screening, you absolutely have to include the ECG. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind about that. You know, frankly, if you don't include it, it's just a waste, of, a waste of everybody's time. It's an unethical process upon what the athlete is undertaking. Um, uh, and what they've done is they've done an excellent review of that. And, and I think if you remove the word man, you know, mandatory from the debate, I think the Americans and the Europeans are a lot closer in their viewpoint about actually how to undertake pre-participation screening. And let's just get your thoughts on pre-participation screening then. You think that... Uh a 17-year-old going to college in America should have it or would be wise to have it? Um, well, it's, it's, it's opening a whole can of worms. I think certainly if you are an elite-level athlete, uh, that you have a professional contract, that you are on the TV on a regular basis, uh, then I think that you know the heart is just another working uh, muscle, just like the skeletal system. Why, why are you not going to assess the knee? Why are you going to not assess the ankle? Why would you not assess the heart at the same time? Um, the problem is, is that it is a, it's a highly complex uh, uh, ethical debate. I personally think that, that elite athletes should have pre-participation screening. Um, and I've held that view for the past 10 years. But I think it's a mandatory process. I don't think that the insurance company should come along and actually say, you know, we are underwriting the salary and we, we insist upon an ECG, an echo and an MRI. Uh, I don't think that's the right approach. I think an athlete has to go into it fully informed um, and knowing what the consequences of actually being, di but being diagnosed with a cardiac condition is. And I think the team physicians actually have to be, you know, we, we as sports cardiologists, as, fit, as, as I am an exercise physiologist, have to educate the community about this. And I don't think that's been done enough. I think, you know, it's this big, bad, scary world of sports cardiology. Um, and actually, it's not as big and scary as it actually sh as it, as it can be. And I guess this key point is that people are more at risk of cardiac events during sport. But on the other hand, they could be have their career terminated by the results of in sports cardiology testing. Is that correct? Um, well, the risk stratification process of, of once you've identified somebody who is say phenotypically positive, they have an abnormal ECG and they have an abnormal echo and they have an abnormal MRI. Uh, the risk stratification of whether that individual is going to arrest you in sport is, is pretty poor. In fact, the evidence out there is, 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 is not that great. But if you take a look at the autopsy studies, you know, Mary Shepard's paper, uh, um, her laboratory, her, her sports pathology, uh, histopathology laboratory in London, um, some of the work she's done, you know, 80% of her athletes that are dying are dying either during sport or within one hour after sport. So that whether we like it or not, there is this association link, but the evidence actually the documented peer-reviewed publications aren't necessarily out there at the present moment. And let's talk about Mary's paper in this issue. Well, Mary's an eminent um, histopathologist. Uh, she reviews most of these uh, sudden cardiac deaths in young athletes in the United Kingdom and she has a central registry um, and it's been going now for a couple of years uh, and I think it's important that we don't just look at the uh, you know at the imaging and, and 
I think it's quite important to actually look at the unfortunately the tragic end point of, of uh, sports cardiology and that is the sudden death of, a, of a, a young athlete a young individual and what can we learn from a histopathologist and I think it's in what's in, what's really uh, valuable about Mary and the, and the work that Mary's doing is looking at the negative autopsy so that is that the autopsy does not necessarily find a a causal mechanism of why this individual has died. And so therefore that, that sets up a cascade screening effect for those living family, those living, those living relatives of the deceased athlete. Um, and obviously then that, that uh, primarily picks up the electrical and iron channel issues um, that uh, are often undiagnosed during a, an autopsy. And why don't you just tell us the common electrical and iron channel issues without going into the details. So one of the ones that most clinicians wouldn't have heard about that have become more recent and that are being covered in BJSM in various ways, but without going into them, what are their names and what are the things to look out for just in a short? The electrical issues, we certainly have the long QT syndromes, long QTs 1, 2 and 3 primarily, and we have the Wolf Parkinson White syndrome, the accessory pathway. Uh, and where we are, where we moved on to from the, from this point within the journal, is then we look then looked at the atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, uh, by Joseph Regard and Louis Mont's laboratory, and then we looked at this syndrome of acquired uh, ventricular arrhythmias, so acquired arrhythmogenic, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy from Hein Heimbuchel's laboratory, uh, with David Pryor and Andre Lagersh, uh, and. This is moving slightly towards those acquired issues within the veteran athlete population. Uh, we, I ran a sports cardiology clinic in London about five years ago and nearly half of the referrals that we were seeing or half of the self-referrals were veteran athletes that had their polar heart rate monitor on, were seeing their heart rates get into 220, 230 and then presenting saying, you know, I've never had this before, what's going on with me? Um, I mean, the problem with with these guys is they are a highly, highly abnormal group of athletes. You, we, we saw one guy that ran 150,000 miles, documented 150,000 miles. We had another veteran athlete that had run a total of 650 marathons, uh, 250 ultra marathons, so that's over 50 miles. Uh, we've had one guy that ran, uh, what, competed in 40 Ironmen. Um, in fact, we had a lovely guy that ran from London to Barcelona in 16 days. And people think that this is a, an uncommon group. They're not an uncommon group. They are, they are ever increasing in their numbers and presenting ever more to, to, to facilities like ours. And what were the findings in these situations, Matt? Uh, well, the findings were that we were seeing a lot of uh, atrial and ventricular arrhythmias within these guys. Uh, and the postulation is, you know, that they were coming from the right ventricle. Uh, and uh, Hein, in the in the journal, Hein Heinbuchel's uh, laboratories has been producing this theory and got some evidence to back it up quite nicely, looking at the the prorhythmic state within the right ventricle where excessive exercise, you know, effectively stretches the right ventricle excessively, damages the connective tissue holding the the right ventricle together. And that produces a substrate for these ventricular arrhythmias to occur within this population. Uh, you know, it's important to, to realise that you know, Ironman is a 10-hour event. 
if you do 40 Ironman in your life, plus the associated training that goes with it, you know, 18, 20 hours of exercise a week, on top of a 37-hour job a week, you know, these guys are really, really stressing their myocardium. And that's, that's you know, I am, I am the first one to say that exercise is medicine. There is absolutely no doubt that I would encourage anybody to, to lace up their trainers and go and do some exercise. I would never stop anybody from exercise. Absolutely. But you have to wonder whether 650 marathons in 20 years is actually good for the myocardium. That's great, Matthew. Thanks for sharing this. I know it's a very hot, cutting-edge topic. Now, you've done a great job of introducing listeners to the special sports cardiology supplement in November. I'm sure that they will dip in there and follow up on some of these issues. Are there any last messages you want to make before we close off this podcast? Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's three key papers I'd like to highlight. Uh, first of all is the significance of deep T-wave inversions in athletes who are asymptomatic, have no family history of sudden cardiac death, who demonstrate nor- normal cardiovascular examinations. And it's a deeply worrying cohort. It's small in population. You know, it's about 2% of the athletes that are out there, so it is a minority. But if you take a condition like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, 90% of those individuals will demonstrate an abnormal ECG. And so, therefore, you're in a real conundrum of, does this individual, this athlete, have uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and is demonstrating it very early on by this abnormal ECG? And do I allow this individual to exercise? There aren't really that many guidelines out there. And so what we've tried to do is with, a, you know, with Sanjay Sharma, Francois Carré, Philippe Chiron, um, Joseph Brigada, Hein Heimbuchel, all these experts in, in sports cardiology, uh, is try to pull together their collective knowledge to say, what do you actually do with these guys? Another uh, thing I'd like to highlight would be uh, Peter Angel's paper on performance-enhancing drugs, specifically anabolic steroids uh, and, and their effect upon the myocardium. What is the evidence out there? You know, a lot of athletes are doping. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's problematic within sport. We've seen it highlighted recently within, within cycling but more, obviously they're more for the, the blood performance-enhancing effects. But, you know, if you take sports like rugby, rugby league, rugby union, the big power sports, we do know that there, there are athletes out there using drugs. And what is the team physician going to be doing about how to identify these individuals uh, and how to educate the athletes upon the damaging effects upon the myocardium? And lastly, but not least, is a paper by Brett uh, Torsdale, um, with Matt Bjornsson, Ron Coulson, Sanjay Sharma and John Dresner looking upon the emergency cardiac care for athletes. You know, if you have, have an athlete that does arrest, what is it that you are going to do? How do you prepare for that emergency? Uh, and they present their experience from being the medical director of the Virgin London Marathon to organising AEDs within schools. Um, we've seen recently within the English Premiership a footballer who arrested, received 78 minutes of resuscitation, who uh, successfully was revived and was recently married last week to his sweet, his longtime sweetheart. So we do know that effective resuscitation does work. Um, whether pre-participation screening identifies all individuals is up for debate. But what we do know that if, a, if you are a sports physician, you must know how to use an AED. 
you must know your emergency escape plan. You must know where the ambulance comes into. You must know the telephone numbers of the local hospital. You must know the local A&E department. And they've produced a really nice step-by-step -step approach about how sports physicians can go about and do this. Great. Look, it's a terrific issue of BJSM and sports cardiology is one of our focus areas, as you know. I want to say a personal thank you to you for being in the leadership group along with John Dresner on bringing these fantastic authors to BJSM broadly and for your hard work on this particular issue. It does um, lead us to remind listeners of the February 2013 issue that's going to have quite a sports cardiology focus and also the Seattle consensus that happened in 2012 that's going to actually produce a web-based learning material for folks to interpret ECGs and do other things. So the take-home message is for listeners to keep in touch with BJSM through the blog and through Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ for updates on sports cardiology. Matthew, thanks for your time today and uh, congratulations on how you've combined your rigorous scientific work with clinical relevance. Thank you very much, Karen. Uh, just one thing for the listeners out there is that all of these uh, articles are open access. So please go to the website, please download them, please download all of them, they're all free. Aspatara has kindly uh, uh, donated its resources to allowing the sports officials to, to do this who don't have access to the libraries. So yes, open access to all, please go download. Thanks, Matt. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.